We're in the middle of a series talking about current cultural issues. We've been talking about homosexuality and gay marriage the last few weeks, talking about abortion this week. We're talking about the rise of Islam and the the things that we see happening in Syria and Iraq and these different places, uh, even in our own backyard, at our own capital and in other various places in the United States. So again, we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about these issues. And the last week, we're going to be looking at uh, what the Bible says about evolution and and science. Uh, Because what's interesting is, as we've gone through these different sermons and start to talk about homosexuality and gay marriage and abortion, we're constantly going back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Many people today will say, well, those chapters are simply poetic. Uh, But yet, those chapters contain the very foundation of so many of the cultural issues that we have today. And so we're going to be looking at those first few chapters in Genesis in a few weeks' time. This morning we're going to be talking about abortion and what the Bible has to say about such a topic. Abortion is defined by Webster's Dictionary as this, a medical procedure, or procedure done by a doctor, used to end a pregnancy and cause the death of the fetus. Now, a fetus is defined in that same dictionary as a human being in the later stages of development before it is born. So if you put those two definitions together, they would define abortion as a procedure done by a doctor used to end a pregnancy and cause the death of a human being before it is born. And it's that topic we're going to address here this morning. I want to say right up front, for those who have an abortion in their past or close to them, there is forgiveness for an abortion. We're not talking here when we talk about homosexuality or gay marriage. We're not talking about unforgivable sins. But they are mentioned in the Bible as sins, and we must call them sins. There is forgiveness and hope for those who have been hurt by these things. Now, recently on YouTube, you might have been aware, or on Facebook or some of the social media, a number of videos that have been circulating by a group called the Center for Medical Progress. This is a group that's been operating for about two and a half years undercover. They've been acting as um, different uh, representatives of procurement companies, companies who are working in uh, biomedicine. They're going around to different abortion clinics, primarily Planned Parenthood down in the United States, uh, with hidden cameras, and saying that they are there to represent other companies who are seeking to buy tissue and stem cells and other things for further research. And so they pose as these people and they, and they go in and they talk to different abortion providers. And the scandal that's happening is not only are abortions taking place in such large numbers in the United States, but the parts of these babies are being sold, being sold for high prices. And people are, are getting wealthy off the sale of baby parts. And there's demands for hearts and for lungs and for livers, uh, for brains, uh, for even, even whole babies are being sold and being used for research. And so as these videos have been going out, they've been created a much stir down in the United States, uh, even among their government. They're continuing now again to have more votes and deliberations in the Senate and other places to try to find out whether they're going to continue to fund an institution like Planned Parenthood. One of the things that I wondered, and you're probably wondering as well, hearing about this is, is this kind of thing happening in Canada? And that's a legitimate question. Planned Parenthood in Canada doesn't do abortions. But is this kind of thing happening in our abortion clinics or hospitals here in Canada? And the answer is yes. In 1999, in fact, an article came out. There was another undercover investigation here in Canada when it was revealed that aborted baby fetuses, aborted babies, 
uh, were being used, uh, being sent after abortions, being sent to different uh, universities and doctors for medical research. Now, no one wanted to touch the issue, and so it never came to the media or to the light of any politician, uh, but that information was there as far back as 1999. So how are we supposed to view abortion? Certainly these videos, if you've watched them or heard about them, are disturbing. Even people who are pro-choice, who think abortion should be legal and should be accessible to all, has a certain problem with seeing things that are going on in these videos, an uneasing feeling. We might be wondering, does the Bible even have anything to say about abortion besides the generality of just people are precious? Does the Bible have anything clearly to say about the life of the unborn? Is that a life? Is that a human life or not? And so we're going to look at the scriptures here this morning, but before we get to that, I think it's important to understand that abortion is not a new issue. Okay, this is not something that came up in the 1900s, in the 60s. Um, it's not just a recent issue. issue. Abortion has been taking place For as far as we have history, abortion has been happening. If we look in the ancient world, abortion or infanticide, infanticide is when you kill a child after birth but before they're 12 months old. Uh, That history goes back thousands of years. Now, abortion was done in the ancient world a number of ways, either physical trauma to the abdomen, you know, a blow to the abdomen, eating or drinking something that would kill the unborn child, Uh, putting instruments to enter and invade the womb or other herbs or spices uh, that would kill the child. And as you can imagine, these kinds of ancient practices were risky. And so this was not typically done to your wife whom you loved, but perhaps a concubine or a mistress or a slave, these kinds of procedures would take place. But it'd be more common if if it was someone you loved, a woman that you loved. It was much more common uh, to go through with the regular delivery process and then what they called to expose the baby. Now, in all generations, we have these words that we want to cover up what's really going on. And so they had this word that they say what we would expose this child. And we actually have letters being written in the ancient world where where men would write back to their wives and say, um, if this child is a girl, then expose it. Just matter of fact, in the middle of this letter. And what they meant by that was to take this child who was just born, bring it outside the gates of the city, and just leave it out there in the wilderness or out there in the wild, outside the gates. And so that child would either leave, die from starvation, uh, die from just exposure to the heat or the, to the cold temperatures, or wild dogs or vultures would come and kill that child that was exposed. And that's how they dealt with unwanted children, through abortion or infanticide. Um, in the Roman world, this is whether a child was unwanted, if they were a girl, a defect, or perhaps underweight, then they would expose their children. Now, Christians from the very beginning have been against this practice. They've called it barbaric, and rightly so. Uh, The Didache, which is one of our oldest Christian documents, apart from the New Testament, goes back to 100 AD. It says in there, you shall not murder, which we should expect, and it also says you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. It was against Christian ethics to do this. And in fact, Christians would go outside the gates of the city to rescue these children before they perished and would adopt them. That was the Christian way. And not to kill your own children, but rather to rescue the children of others and to care for them. So as we see, before we look at the scriptures, this is not a recent phenomenon, this idea of abortion or infanticide. Now, what I want to do today as we look at the scriptures is begin in the book of Genesis. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. 
And we're going to look at a few passages here this morning to see what the Bible would say about such an issue. Now, as you look in Genesis chapter 1, you're likely familiar that this is the account of creation where God is speaking and things are being called into existence and God is saying, this is good. And the pinnacle, the zenith of God's creation is the creation of Adam and Eve, of the human race, because they are made in God's image. And so if you look down in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the basis for the dignity and for the honor and for the, for the value of human life in our, in our world. Because God has made people, male and female, in his image. That is, he's created us to reflect him in his likeness, in his image. The very, this, this description is never applied to the animal world. In fact, we're to have dominion over animals. As we read in Genesis 9, um, animals were given for us to eat, for sustenance. But we cannot shed the blood of other people because they are made in the image of God. So we cannot commit murder because man and male and female are created in God's image. And so we mean by created in God's image, reflecting God, a variety of things are meant by that. The fact that we're here worshiping God, we're reflecting him by giving him honor and glory. The very thought, very fact that we can process communication, we can speak rationally and think rationally is something that differentiate differentiates us from the animal world uh, we have emotion we have relationships we have morality we have responsibility all of these things are part of what it means to be created in god's image to be made like him to reflect him and so we have inherent dignity and value and worth whether male or female and so to kill a human as we read in genesis 9 6 is morally wrong because Human beings have been bestowed with special dignity and honor by God. So the question becomes, what about a baby in the womb? What about a fetus, an embryo, a zygote? Do those things, are they people? Do they have the same properties? Are they made in the image of God? And for that, I want you to turn to the next book, Genesis after Genesis is Exodus. And Exodus 21 Exodus 21, this is the section of scripture that your eyes start to gloss over a bit as you're reading through the scripture and you get into all these commands and they just kind of blur but right in the middle of all these commands that God is giving to his people. You know, if this happens and this is the result, if this happens, this is how they should be dealt with or punished. Right in the middle of that, he's got a very, very interesting command in, in Exodus 21. And if you're in Exodus 21, look at verses 22. I'm going to read verse 22 to 25. It says this, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. 
But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay, so what is exactly this passage talking about? Okay, it seems, it's, it's describing when men are fighting, they're striving together, and a pregnant woman is hit. She's hit in such a way that she gives birth. Her children come out. Okay, and, and it says is, if there's no harm done, that is, the children are okay, then there's going to be a fine. But if the children have been harmed, then it's life for life. Then it's, it's just like an adult was injured or killed in a fight. And so that baby is to be treated as a living human being, even though moments ago they were in the womb when they were hit. Now, some, in fact, don't understand the passage this way, and rather they interpret it like this. They say when men are striving together and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. That is, she has a miscarriage, but she is not harmed. Then they say, then there's going to be a fine. But if the woman is harmed, in verse 23, but they say, but if there is harm, that is, if the woman has been harmed, then you shall pay life for life. Then the consequences are more severe. Now, I want to show you why that can't be a proper interpretation and why this is talking about harm done to the child and not to the woman. The first reason is when it says, the pregnant woman that her children come out in verse number 22. Okay, that Hebrew word there uh, for child or children is yeled. And that word is always used of living children. It's not re- ever referred to as a dead children or as um, a miscarriage. The the word for a, for a fetus is golem. And we'll look at that word in a second. That's a Hebrew word that's not used here. He's talking about a child, a living child that has come out of this pregnant woman. And also this whole idea of the children come out, that word that is used there, the Hebrew word is yatsah. And again, we don't usually talk about some of these words, but sometimes you you have to talk about some of the technicalities to understand. But that Hebrew word is used always of a live birth, a living birth. There is a Hebrew term for miscarriage, and it's not used here. That word is shakal, it's not used in this section at all. So it's talking about living children, it's talking about a live birth in the Hebrew language. And so this is actually talking about a child that has been delivered prematurely because of an altercation. But if that child was to suffer, it was, it was too early, and that child was to die because of that altercation, then it would be life for life. They'd be treated just the same as if the mother had been killed in that altercation. So what we see in this text, in this Old Testament law, is that the treatment of the unborn is the same as the treatment of those who are born, those who are living, those who are adults or more developed. And so we see the sanctity of life preserved, whether someone is outside of the womb or inside of the womb. The, the next passage I want to turn to is Psalm 139. We read from Psalm 139 this morning. And Psalm 139 actually uses the Hebrew word for fetus, golem, And we're going to see that here in Psalm 139. And I want to read Psalm 139, verse 13 to 16. Okay, we don't want to get get lost in the technicalities, but the reason why we're going through these texts is again to see 
God's view, the scripture's view of the unborn, those who are still in the womb, whether they still have the same dignity and sanctity as those who are have been born. Okay, so in Psalm 139, starting in verse 13, it says, For you formed my inward parts. The, the word there is literally kidneys. You know, you formed my inward parts, thy insides. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. That word there that's translated unformed substance is golem or fetus. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. See what David is saying here? Not only has God intricately made and and saw his unformed substance, him as a fetus, but David says, I was, that was me. All my days were planned. That wasn't something that became David or became a person. That was David. Okay? And each and every single one of us here, we were a fetus. And you were an embryo. And you were a zygote. You were a single cell. You didn't come from that. Okay? That's an important distinction. I didn't come from a teenager. I was a teenager. I didn't come from a toddler. I was a toddler. The same way I was a fetus. I was an embryo. And so were you. And that's what David is saying here. This is who I was. This was me in the womb when you knit me together and you planned my days. So we see God's involvement here in fetal development and the intricate weaving and knitting together of a human being. No wonder that God has commanded the Hebrews and why they believed in the sanctity of life, even life in the womb. I want you to listen to some other texts as I read those too. You don't need to turn to these ones, but you can listen in Job thirty-one fifteen. It says, did not he who made me in the womb make him and did not one fashion us in the womb? Psalm 22, 9 and 10 says this, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you, I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Luke 1.15 talks about John the Baptist and says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So we see John the Baptist in the mother's womb fill the Holy Spirit kicking when Jesus was nearby. Jesus was a fetus. Jesus was an embryo. And, and so we understand the sanctity and the importance of a human life, no matter how small, no matter where you are, no matter even if you're a single cell, you are still a human being created in God's image. And so as we see some of these texts, we see the Bible's view of the the sanctity and the honor of human life, no matter what its form or stages of development. Now, in the Old Testament, there is many prohibitions. We've read about this one here in Exodus. There's others in Leviticus. For instance, listen to Leviticus 18.21. It says, Do not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. It's so common for God's people to imitate the society around them. And the society around the Israelites would offer up their children to the god Molech, an idol that would be sitting in an inferno of flames holding its arms out and babies would be put on its hands 
and then down this hot piece of metal, these babies would slide through the hole in the belly back into the fire. And they would do that to appease their gods. And the Israelites would do the same things in some cases. And Leviticus is saying, do not do this. In fact, the death penalty was given for those who would sacrifice or give up their child in this way. And it was not just infants. God's judgment fell on those who killed the unborn. Uh, 2 Kings 8.12, it talks about how Elisha is weeping because he foresaw the king of Syria. And this is what it says in 2 Kings 8.12. He saw the king of Syria kill their young men, sorry, kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Amos prophesied against the Ammonites because they, it says in Amos 1.13, they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their borders. And so we see God's wrath being poured out on people who would do such things, who would slaughter both those who are living and those who are the unborn, those who are still living in the womb. And in first century Judaism, this is not just in ancient times, but in first century Judaism, the time of Christ, we have a Jewish document, the sentences of Pseudo-Phoclides. And it says this, a woman should not destroy the unborn in her belly nor after its birth, uh, throw it before the dogs and vultures as prey. The apocryphal book, another Jewish book of First Enoch, and this was written in the first or second century BC, it said this, it said that an evil angel or demon taught humans to smash the embryo in the womb. In fact, that this, this practice of killing the unborn is Satan's devices and because of evil angels. Josephus, the first century historian says this he says the law talking about jewish law the law orders all the offspring to be brought up and forbids women either to cause abortion or to make away with the fetus okay this is this is the culture that we are a part of because this is a culture that is based on the passage that we just read in genesis and exodus and leviticus and in psalms and other things valuing human life and all of its forms, because we are made special in the image of God, that's the heritage that we have as Christians. Consider that with the culture that surrounded the Israelites, the Canaanites, who would offer up their babies to be burned, to try to appease their molten gods, their gods made of metal or wood. Compare that with the Romans, who were around the Jews in the days of Christ. And according to the Romans, Cicero writes, that according to the 12 tables of Roman law, that deformed infants should be killed. This is regular. If, if, a, if a child is deformed, they should be killed. That was the Roman way of doing things. Christianity, Judaism, those who would follow the scriptures, follow God's law, have always been countercultural in this point because we value human life. That's our heritage. I've quoted from the Didache, the early Christian document, we also have another Christian document, Letter of Barnabas, around 130 BC. It also says, you should not abort a child or again commit infanticide. God's people have always stood against abortion and the killing of children. Always. It doesn't matter if they had a defect. It doesn't matter if they were unwanted. It doesn't matter if they were male or female. God's children, God's people have always been against these kinds of activities. Now, you might be thinking, in our day and age, we hear so much about these exception cases. What about incest? What about rape? What about abnormalities? 
Well, what about just the cost factor and the inconvenience or other kinds of things? Uh, what about saving the life of the mother? And these are discussions that we have, and so we need to address some of these things. But before we look at some of those objections and how to answer those as Christians, I want to, first of all, look at abortion in Canada. Because the, the mantra that's put forward many times is safe, uh, legal, and rare. That is, abortion should be safe, should be done by doctors, uh, not done in the back alley, should be done in a safe place, it should be legal, accessible to all, paid for by the government, but it should be rare. Okay, it should not happen all the time. This should, we should rather prefer birth control or other ways uh, rather than going to abortion. It should be safe, legal, and rare. And so I want to look at abortion here in Canada. We know, you probably heard uh, the millions and millions of babies who have been killed in the United States of America. But what about Canada? Um, what is abortion like here in Canada? As a, a bit of a historical background. Abortion in Canada has, was decriminalized in 1969. Okay, so it was no longer against the law starting in 1969. And then in 1988, all the laws concerning abortion were struck down by the Supreme Court. And so right now in Canada, there are no laws governing abortion. Uh, in, in places like the United States, there are certain uh, weeks of gestation. You know, a baby is 40 weeks typically uh, as, a, as a full-term infant. As the United States have laws, you know, around, I think it's 23 or 24 weeks, you're no longer allowed to have an abortion. But in Canada, there, there's no laws like that here in Canada. There, is, there are no abortion laws here in Canada. So technically, uh, someone could receive an abortion in the 39th week. As long as that baby wasn't born yet, technically they could get an abortion. It doesn't mean it happens like that, but that is the state of our laws here in Canada. Since that ruling in 1988, on average, about 100,000 abortions are reported every year uh, in Canada. Now, not all provinces take part in that reporting, and in some provinces it's voluntary. So that's the minimum. A minimum of 100,000 babies a year are aborted in Canada. So that's between 1988 and 2010. That's about 2 million babies lost their lives due to abortion. Here in Alberta, that's about 13,000 infants a year with about 6,000 a year done, done here in southern Alberta, Calgary and area. About 6,000 babies a year are murdered or aborted here in Calgary and area. Who is getting these abortions? Well, the statistics show that abortions are most common for women in their 20s. But what's interesting or uh, shocking was about half of the abortions that are, that are performed here in Canada are repeat abortions. They are done by someone who's already had an abortion before. So half of the people walking into the abortion clinic to get an abortion have already been there before, have already gotten one. Um, not only that, but women with one, two, or even more children are getting abortions here in Alberta. This is not just for the single women or for those who don't have a husband, but rather we find a variety of women in ages and in number of children that they do have getting abortions. As I mentioned, there's no abortion laws here in Canada, no laws out, or no laws banning third trimester abortion, abortions. And in fact, in 2010, there were over 500 abortions after 21 weeks gestation. That is, that's already half past the halfway point of a pregnancy. 500 of those in one year in 2010. Uh, partial birth abortions are also completely legal 
and our practice here in Canada. And what, what they mean by a partial birth abortion is because a baby is too large to be killed in the normal means of suctioning out limb by limb with a vacuum, that they are given birth and they're giving birth leg and body first. And then when the base of the skull is exposed, the doctor uses scissors to make to cut the base of the skull and then sticks the vacuum tube into the head and sucks out everything in the brain. And then the rest of the baby comes out. And that qualifies as an abortion. Hundreds of those happening in Canada. According to Stats Canada... Between 2000 and 2009, there were 491 aborted babies over 20 weeks gestation. So in those nine years, between 2000 and 2009, there were 491 aborted babies over 20 weeks in gestation that exhibited signs of life. That is, babies who were aborted after 20 weeks or were attempted to be aborted, where a heart was beating, where muscles were moving, and in some cases even babies were crying as they were being aborted. This happens here in Canada, our civilized country, our land of the free. The most common age that a baby is aborted here in Canada is between 9 and 12 weeks. It's common to have people tell you, well, Abortions are only taking place when, you know, six to eight weeks gestation. These, these, this is not just a baby yet. This is a, a clump of tissue, a clump of cells. But the stats show the most common age for a baby to be killed in their mother's womb is between nine and 12 weeks of age. Now, even if that age was to be scrolled back, when a, when a woman finds out she is pregnant, she is already about five weeks pregnant. A heart is already beating. The internal organs are already there. That's just at five weeks. At nine to, nine to 12 weeks, where most of the abortions are taking place, at nine weeks, the baby inside already has fingers and toes and eyelids and eardrums and wrists and ankles. At 10 weeks, all the vital organs, the liver, the kidneys, the intestines, the brain and lungs are, are formed and functioning. At 11 weeks, the baby has all of its parts, from tooth buds to toenails. It's all there, just waiting for more food and nourishment and time to grow and to develop. At 11 weeks, they're kicking, they're stretching, they're doing flips. At 12, weeks, at 12 weeks of age, babies are moving and they're responding to touch and to vibrations and to sounds. They've done tests at 12 weeks of age where if you touch the hand of a, of a baby at 12 weeks of age, they'll, they'll close their hand. They'll curl their foot. If you touch their face, they'll squint their eyes. There's doctors who have done abortions on the ultrasound when they see the baby moving away from the vacuum suction. And at that point, those who have a conscience that is left to say, that's it, I'm never doing that again. This is at 12 weeks. These, these is the most common ages that babies are being killed in our country. And this is still in the first trimester. This is by no means a clump of cells. This is a human life with beating heart and can feel. And this is the most common age or stage of development that a baby is killed usually dismembered and suck from their mother's womb with a vacuum tube. Now, are we supposed to believe in this day and age that these babies are not real people? These aren't persons yet, but these are just work prayed potential persons. They're, they're almost human. Science tells us that life starts at conception, but not everyone believes that. If you've followed 
uh, Hillary Clinton and some of the things that are happening down in the United States, she thinks that when a baby leaves the hospital, that's when they are a human being. Others say that when they're viable outside the womb. The thing with that is that one part of the hospital, a baby at 24 weeks could be fighting for its life with the help of the doctors. Another part of the hospital, a baby at 24 weeks could be being ripped limb from limb from another doctor. Both are viable outside the womb. One is being murdered and one is being rescued. Makes no sense. According to the Canadian Criminal Code, they say life is when a baby has completely proceeded in a living state from the body of its mother. But we find out that really the value of life in our society today is when people want the child versus not wanting it. That's the real determining factor on whether a child should be aborted or killed or not. If they're wanted, then they're a person. You know, when have you ever heard a woman who is pregnant say, oh, I'm, I have a, a nice fetus here and I can't wait till they come out and they're a human being? Nobody speaks that way. If you want the child, you say, this is my baby. I'm pregnant with a baby and I can't wait to hold my baby. Okay? And if you don't want it, then you call it a fetus. Then you call it a clump of cells. Then it's not a baby. And it's all based on that factor of whether that child is wanted or not. Now, in our advanced technology, our society today, we know that life starts at the moment of conception. And why can we say that is that way so definitively? Well, when an egg is fertilized, when a female ovum is fertilized with a male sperm, the egg brings 23 chromosomes and the sperm brings 23 chromosomes. As soon as that egg is fertilized, there is now 46 chromosomes in that new life. That is a complete human being genetic code. Everything is set at that point, at moment of fertilization. Hair color, height, weight, all those characteristics that you and I have, their DNA is, is set. There is nothing else that they need externally besides time to grow and protection and food. That's all they need. Everything about that person to, to growing all of its organs and limbs is all built into that single human cell. In fact, when a geneticist, he stood before a Senate subcommittee, um, a French geneticist named Jerome Lejeune, and he said this, to accept the fact that after fertilization has taken place, a new human has come into being is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. The human nature of the human being from conception to old age is not a metaphysical contention. It is plain experimental evidence. Okay, so he says it's clear. It's accepted now. We know life begins at conception. But whether life is in the womb or not really is not the deciding factor today. It's whether someone is wanted or not. And that's why we can kill the unborn as a society. That's why we can kill the disabled as a society. That's why we want to kill the elderly as a society because they're not wanted anymore. That's the premise, not whether they are a human being or not. And so we have people suppressing the truth, suppressing God's truth and doing so for unrighteous reasons. And I, I do pray that God would grant our country repentance because we see what happens when a society goes against God and does such horrific things. Now, what about some of these objections? Doesn't a woman have rights over her own body? Doesn't she have rights over what is inside of her body? Can't she do what she wants with her own body? It seems like an impregnable argument. How can you how can you respond to that? We all have rights, right? 
Now, we all have rights that we cannot act on, that are suppressed for the good of common society. Okay? I cannot go and just parade naked downtown. I cannot go and just drive as fast as I want. I have certain rights that are restricted for my own good and for the sake of society. And so often when people cry about the rights of women and cry about women's rights, they're neglecting the fact that most of the babies being aborted are women themselves. If you're so up in arms about women's rights, what about the rights of the unborn women whom you are slaughtering in a mother's womb? What about the baby's rights? They have a right to live just as much as we do. Some people say, well, we need to keep abortion legal because otherwise it will be unsafe. Because abortions used to be done in the back alleys and other unsafe places and it was hard on women and dangerous. And so if we make them illegal, then it's going to be dangerous again. Well, you can apply the same argument to to murder and to drug deals. Those are dangerous things. And they happen in the back alley in dark places. And rightly so. Because they're horrific. They're against morality. They're immoral. And so the fact that abortion would be something that is immoral and that has to be done in something in, in darkness is not an argument against it. Rather, it's showing its truthfulness. That it's the murder of a child that shouldn't be safe, convenient, and accessible to all, even without parental consent, which is what you have today. You have young girls coming in without their parents' knowledge being able to get an abortion, and they're not allowed to tell their parents. They want to make this as safe and convenient as possible, but it shouldn't be safe and convenient to murder your child. What about rape? What about when someone is impregnated because of rape? Is abortion legitimate in that case? Well, there is news this month. An 11-year-old girl in Paraguay, she just gave birth after she was raped by her stepfather when she was 10 years old. And her 32-year-old mother uh, seems to be complicit in the whole thing too. Now, her mother applied and tried to get an abortion done. And abortion is, is illegal in Paraguay, except if the mother's life is in danger. And so they refused to, re- refused to give her an abortion. And that now you had the UN and Amnesty International, these other human rights groups were decrying the whole situation as a human rights violation. They were so upset that this young girl couldn't get an abortion. But apparently we're silent on the fact that she was abused by her stepfather. And this mother, who also was there with that same abuse, um, seems to just never be mentioned. Now, that government, I think, did a good thing. They said no to the abortion. They've given custody of that child to the grandmother. And that mother and that stepfather are now in jail and going to be prosecuted through the courts for the things that they have done. How does killing a child help? Rape. How does killing the child going to help a mother grieve over a difficult process? In fact, there was, there was a mom who's 23 years ago was in almost the exact same situation in the United States. This girl's name is Liana. And when she was 12 years old, she became pregnant after being raped by two men. Unlike in Paraguay, her doctor says you have every right to get an abortion and was encouraging her down this path, but left her with the choice. And here he is, a 12-year-old girl, leave with the choice of whether to kill her baby or not. And she asked that doctor an important question. She says, if I get an abortion, am I going to forget about what happened to me? It's going to make me feel any better. And the doctor says, no, it's not going to. She says, well, I'm not going to get it then. And this is what she says. Um, She said, I just knew that I had someone inside my body. 
I never thought about who her biological father was. She was my kid. She was inside of me. 23 years later now, with her 23-year-old daughter, she says two lives were saved. She saved her daughter's life and her daughter saved her life. And she says this. She says, even though the rape was a very hard moment, if I had to go through that again just to know and to love my daughter, I would go through that again. She's always been there for me. She's the only person who has shown me real love and I will always be grateful. Abortion is not the solution, she added. Not even for rape. Okay? It's not going to help someone grieve or get over a rape by killing your child. That is not going to help you forget about it. Now, what you're going to have to remember is the fact that you were raped and the fact that you have killed your child. Now you have two things that you're going to be guilt-struck over and feel shame and dirtiness and all these other things that people feel. The solution is not to kill your baby in situations of rape. Now, what about when a mother's life is in danger? Okay, we hear that a lot too. Now, I must say that an abortion, as it's described, going in with the intention to kill the baby is never going to save the life of a mother. Okay, abortion is never going to save the life of mother. Now, there is certain medical procedures. For instance, if a baby is developing in a fallopian tube or outside the uterus, those things are dangerous to the mother. And so certain operations, like to remove the uterus or remove the fallopian tubes, are necessary to save the life of the mother. But the intention is to save life, not to go in there and just to kill the baby and that's it. This is a medical procedure where sometimes it is necessary to save the life of the mother that the life of the child is taken. It's not on purpose. There's other people who, who wait as long as they can till that baby is developed enough so they can then do that procedure and then care for both the baby and the mother. Okay, Abortion, intentionally killing the life of a child is not going to save someone. But there is times and that difficult decision might, become, might, be, might be called upon. In that case, it is better to save one life. Than, than to lose both lives, the life of the mother and of the baby, unless we act in these cases. What about birth defects? Some people say, well, this is a justifiable action because, just because of the, the quality of life and other things like that. What about birth defects? One of my older sisters, she had two healthy boys, and then she became pregnant with, with a third boy. And at 18 weeks of age, after the typical screenings and tests, doctors let them know that things are not right. In fact, her baby had a, a, <clears throat> her baby had a, a genetic defect called trisomy 18. 18th chromosome. There was there was three chromosomes, not two, and this defect is a, is a fatal defect. The doctor says that at the most, like, your baby's likely going to die before you give birth. And, and if you do give birth, it's only going to survive for a short time. And so again, the, the option of abortion was there. We can, we can just, we can just take care of it now and avoid that grieving process. Or at least limit it. Does that news justify abortion? And we have to think, in my sister's case, how would killing her own son help her? over the grieving process? How would her taking the life of her son help her grieve through this difficult time? Of course, they decided to continue through the pregnancy and little Isaac, as they named him, 
kicked and stirred in her belly just like a regular child would. Time came to deliver Isaac and he was born. He was a little underweight, but by all appearances, he looked to be fine. But they knew things were terribly wrong on the inside. So my parents traveled there. And for a short time, both my sister and her husband and my parents were able to cuddle and hold Isaac to spend time with him. And he died a short time after that. My parents send flowers every year on Isaac's birthday. And and they remember him as a son, as a grandson, as a brother. Not not a a bunch of cells that they had to get rid of because there was something wrong. But as a human being that God had made and that God has taken away from them. God took Isaac. He wasn't butchered at the hands of his parents or his doctor. Again, no excuse for abortion in those cases. What about birth defects or abnormalities that would affect the quality of life long term? In this case, this this young Isaac died at a very young age. What happens if someone is going to live a lifetime of, of problems? And it's going to create so much strain on the hospital system. There's going to be so much surgeries and other things that are going to come after that. And there's going to be mental problems and there's going to be school issues and it's going to be so much money for the parents and it's just going to be a real inconvenience for everybody. Isn't abortion then justifiable? Won't it be better for that person just to be, just to be done with, with all that pain? Some people think this way. But as you think about it this way, what would you think if my six-year-old son was in a car accident and it was bad and it didn't look good at all? And in fact, when they brought him to the hospital, the doctor would say, look, his quality of life is going to be very low, severe brain damage, severe physical abnormalities. He's never going to walk again. He's never going to run like the little boy's. He's not going to be able to do the things. He's not going to be able to speak. It's going to be a real burden on you and your wife. Now, would anybody ever recommend that I kill my six-year-old son in that case? Because he's going to have a low quality of life? Of course not. The doctors are going to do whatever they can in their power to save his life. To give him as much of of a life that he can live with his abilities. Same thing with the child. What's the difference between a six-year-old and a baby in the womb? There is no difference. Life is important. And yes, it might be difficult. That's part of God's plan for sanctifying us. Not that we would take matters into our own hands and kill the life of others. So whether someone is six or whether someone is unborn, we do not kill them because they're going to have a lower quality of life than what we would think. If we thought that way, we'd be looking around the room right now and saying, well, there's some of you who are pretty sickly. Some of you are getting up in age. It's time to go to the doctor. You know, put you out of your misery. Your quality of life is pretty low. Of course not. Who are we to judge quality of life? Who am I to look at someone with a, with a handicap, with a mental handicap? Every time I look at them, they're always smiling. How, how can I say his quality of life is lower than mine? You don't know that. But what it comes down to, and all, after all these exceptions, we must realize that these exceptions are not the norm. 
And it's not about these exceptions. They're called exceptions because they are exceptions. What the norm is, is because children are an inconvenience. And so we need to get rid of them. In fact, when Raquel and I uh, were in Ontario and having uh, one of our girls, and we told the doctor that we think we're pregnant. Yeah, doctor confirms you're pregnant. We told her that we, uh, we have a swack load of kids who are just a, a few years older than this one. And the doctor says, oh, was it planned? And we said, no. Well, do you want to continue with the pregnancy? Like, what? And so in our society today, having lots of children is, is, is tough for you to do. And so the way to handle that is to kill some of your children. So that way you can handle them. And that just came out quite naturally in the middle of a conversation. And so abortion, in the end, besides these exceptions that are thrown out for sake of argument, it comes down to a matter of convenience. We must realize that Murder is murder, whether the excuse is to make your life easier or not. Murder is murder, and it is always wrong for a human being in the womb or outside of the room. So my plea and my, one of my reasons for going through this this morning is so that we would all remember that abortion is never an option. It's my plea that no matter where you're at, whether you're a lady faced with this dilemma whether you're a boyfriend facing even parents, even Christian parents sometimes pressure their daughters to get an abortion because of the shame and the scandal it might bring. It happens. And my plea is that this would never take place, that we would recognize that human life is special and is meant to be protected and provided for, never destroyed. And as you think about this, horrific practice, we must remember that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And if you ever have this in your past and you've confessed and you've received forgiveness from Lord Jesus Christ, now you have an opportunity to minister to others. You've been in the place where they've been in and you can be an effective minister to other women who are experiencing the same feelings that you have experienced. There's a guilt that God places on our hearts and that guilt is meant to bring us to repentance not meant to suppress that guilt, but telling ourselves it's okay. And that's, it's just, it's not a human being. That's not how we deal with our guilt. We deal with our guilt through confession and through repentance and through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That his death for sin is sufficient to cover even the sin of murder. If people like the Apostle Paul and David who were guilty of the sin of murder, and yet they've experienced the sweet forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, abortion is our world's answer to unwanted children. The Christian answer to unwanted children is adoption, not abortion. If you think about it, our God is an adopting God. God came to this world to save, not to destroy. He came to save in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself. We talk about how people do abortions because it's going to be such a, a big effort on their part. Adoption is the exact opposite. To go and to adopt means you need to sacrifice yourself for the sake of somebody else. This is a self-sacrificing love to be able to adopt someone as your own. And this is exactly what God did through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave of himself. Jesus Christ laid down his own life on the cross. He gave it up. Not because it was easy. We sometimes think that way. Okay, he's the son of God. To him to die was, was easy. He knew he was going to rise again three days later. No sweat off his back. He's going to die right there. He's okay. No. 
Look at what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. He, 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 he was weeping. He was in agony. He was in distress. Luke says that it was like sweat drops of blood were pouring from his face. Blood vessels were bursting on his face as he looked forward to the following day when he would be crushed under the wrath of God for sin. This wasn't a walk in the park. This wasn't a snap your fingers. I'm going to go die for the world. Now I'm, I'm okay. No, he suffered under the wrath of God for the sin of his people. And we see the sin. We, see, we know how gross it is to God. And we know God's wrath is kindled when he sees sin. We know God's wrath is kindled when he saw the slaughter of babies in the Old Testament. And his wrath is kindled when he sees a slaughter of babies here in our day today. And Jesus Christ bore the weight of that wrath. And he died in a self-sacrificing love. And God the Father adopted us as children, as heirs with Christ. I want to read this passage here in Romans 8, 15. It says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That is love. Abortion is not loving. Adoption is self-sacrificing love, true love, the love that we see God show us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Abortion is rooted in self-love of the worst sort. Rather than loving sacrifice, it's a form of tyranny that preys on the weak, the defenseless, the nameless, and those who have no voice. It's my prayer that we as Christians would fight for the unborn. Fight for those who are made in the image of God. And realize that we, those who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only are we now image bearers of God, but we've been adopted as sons of God. And don't you want others to experience that same love and the same forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ? So we don't go out there just to point the finger at those who participate in abortion or exercise it or support it. Our goal is not just to end abortion. Our goal is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to bring guilt and bring shame, but to bring forgiveness and hope and peace and grace. And so we go there with the gospel. That's how we go into our world today. So I pray that God would grant us a greater faith in him, a greater appreciation in the fact that we've been adopted, that we'd go forward as a church with that same kind of adopting love, both proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and at the same time being willing to feed and to care for those who have um, undergone some of these procedures or who want to give up their children to adoption. That we'd be people who would consider doing things just like that because we've been loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.